So glad you guys are here today as we're starting off on our series, Growing Pains, and we're going to be looking at the early church, or we're going to be walking through that storyline of that early church and what, uh, what God was doing to establish the gospel and what happens when it wins. Um, one of the things that we're going to really realize, though, is that every journey um, has signposts on it, and that you've got to be able to read those signs and take the right direction, or there are going to be consequences. I think for me, this was especially evident years ago. My wife and I got a chance to go visit Scott and Casey in Thailand, and while we were there, there are some family members here at the church, and while we were there, we got engaged um, with the opportunity of visiting and walking through Chiang Mai. My wife and I love walking through cities, um, and so we finally were alone at the retreat. We said, let's get out of here. We got up, we walked out, and we walked through the city and just kind of enjoyed enjoyed kind of the various sights and sounds and found we found a Starbucks and we actually drank some Starbucks in Thailand and then we kind of went in and saw the Wats. There are these giant Buddhist temples and engaged with a couple of the, uh, the kind of orange-robed Buddhist monks that were walking down the streets and living in the area. You know, we had some amazing Thai food. You didn't have Thai food until you had it in Thailand. That stuff was awesome. And so just enjoyed the whole time. As dusk was starting to hit and it's getting close to nighttime coming over this city, we're like, yeah, we don't know what the city gets like at night, so we better kind of head back. So we refound the Starbucks, which was kind of like our, our center point of where we really kind of knew things were, and there was this big street, and the taxis would drive by. Now note, when I say taxis, don't think yellow cab. Think some guy in 1980, um, 1987, like Toyota Tacoma, who has put like a, a trailer top on the back of his truck, and you sit there on these little on these little benches while he drives 100 miles an hour through the town. So that, that's the idea of a taxi. So we waved one of those down, and we kind of were like, "Hey, we have the we have the address of this place, the juniper tree that we were staying at." We're like, "Hey, can you can you get us there?" And the first guy looks at it, he goes, looks at us, looks at that, no, and drives away. He gives us the instructions, and we're like. Okay, that didn't work. Next guy comes up, does the same thing. He makes a phone call, gives us it back and says, no, and drives away. And finally, the last guy's like, sure, I'll figure it out. And we sit down in the back of his truck and uh, he starts driving down the road, kind of in the direction we thought was the right way. And he takes a left and he takes another turn and he takes another turn. And this whole time, I don't know where we're going because while there are signs up, they're all written in Thai, and so that's like in a Sanskrit kind of in a kind of writing. It's not even in normal English um, English characters, so that you could even try to make out what the word is. And so you're just going like, I have no idea where I am. These signs are pointing somewhere, but I have no idea where I'm going. And finally, they drive us around. They get and he stops out in the middle of this like back street alley kind of place. The truck is running. He's calling somebody. My wife leans over to me. She says, "Is this the point? He kills us." So. Uh, <clears throat> It was, it was one of those moments that I really wish I could read the signs. He did get us back to the juniper tree. We did wind up paying him pretty well because he's the only guy who was willing to try. But it was true that we wish we could have read the signs. We wish we could have understood and been able to pull up a map on our, on our phones. But they didn't have signs for every street. They didn't name every street. And so there's not always an available opportunity to know where you're going. But that's the thing with signs. Signs, all signs, point to something. They aim us in a direction. And it's especially true as you and I approach 
this book called the book of Acts. We call it the book of Acts. It was actually originally the second scroll of a two-scroll kind of document that was put together by a man named Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor in the ancient world. He had traveled with a man named Paul who had planted churches, and on a request of a Roman official named Theophilus, he asked him, would you please give me the history of what happened with Jesus and what's gone on in the last 30 years? And so in his first scroll, we know it as the book of Luke, Dr. Luke writes out the biography of Jesus from the eyewitnesses and the information that he had gathered on his journeys in, the, in the, uh, what we call the promised land in Israel at the time, while Paul sat in jail. While, sat, while he sat remaining in jail in Rome, he continued that, and he wrote out all of the different travels and the things that had happened over the 30 years since Jesus had resurrected. And that's what we've been looking at. We've dove into some conversations about what God is doing and what's happening, and signs are hugely important when it comes to the particular text that we're looking at today. It's found in Acts chapter 3, if you want to go there. We're going to look at this event in, um, in church history, and we're going to kind of pull some, uh, some thoughts from it. But Acts chapter 3, and we're going to look at the whole chapter today if you want to grab a Bible and open there. But it begins in a particular location that is, doesn't exist anymore, but it would have looked something like this. This is the Temple Mount area, the ten, and uh, it's kind of a rendering of what, it, what they believe it might have looked like. And you're looking at it, I believe, from the, we're standing and we're looking west. And so you'd see the front of the temple right there in the center is that temple, and this big complex surrounds it. Now, there are little barrier walls around it where the Gentiles can't pass, and then the next one is where the women can't pass, and then the next one after that is only where the priests can go and so on. But this entire complex would be surging with people at various points of the year, with millions of people at some point uh, over, the, over the entire year going, and hundreds of thousands just going to the temple to um, two times a day. For every day, there was a morning sacrifice where they would do some prayers and an offering and ask God to forgive them of their sins, and they would do an evening sacrifice, which was around three o'clock. And so it's around 3 o'clock that we're going to start this one where they would have had a time where people will surge to the temple to watch the sacrifice, to pray to God, and to sing songs together as a congregation. And during this time period is when we begin our kind of conversation at this temple mount. And so it says this in verse 1, now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's what we were talking about, and the man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, he's likely been brought on a mat by his family members since if you were born with lame legs, you couldn't walk or some disability that didn't allow you to work, your job for your family was to ask alms. And the Jewish people were very good at giving to the people who are poor and the people who are in need. And so in this case, he was laid daily, probably around this time every day, because it was a, a hot time. It was good. It was, it was a perfect moment. We don't quite know where the beautiful gate is. I'd love to point it out to you, but we don't know. What we do know is that it was beautiful, one, and that it was busy. That's about all we know about this gate. And so this man sat there and probably made a pretty decent living just asking alms, and he was well known because he was there daily. And so in this setting, he's Peter and Paul, John are walking in. They're seeing Peter and John about to enter the, into the temple. He asked to receive alms. And so they verbally used it. They didn't have cardboard and Sharpies at the time, so they actually had to call out and ask for help. And so Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, 
Look at us. That's, that's like rolling down your window on a, right here when you get off at Ontario or, when you, or over here at Tyler or somewhere. When you lower that window, someone's going to approach you because they're expecting you to give them something. So he says, look at us. And so they look. And he's looking at him. He's probably holding his bowl out really high. And, then, and so Peter directed his gaze at him and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. In other words, psych! And it's like, that's not going to happen. This guy's like, no, get out of the way. I want somebody else. Move along. Instead, he says this, what I, but what I do have, I give you, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, that's an interesting situation. I mean, if you were the man sitting there begging, you hear this word, I don't have anything, and you're thinking, go along then. He says, well, what I do have, I will give you in the name of Jesus. Because this doesn't make any sense. Rise up and do what? This man has never walked. He was born lame. It's been 40 years of life, we find out later in the story, and this man has, has no concept of what it would be to get up and walk. He sees other people doing it, probably can't really move his legs that well. They probably aren't formed right to, to be able to walk. He's probably lied, laid either on his back or his side all of his life. And so suddenly this, is this scene, he says, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus, a guy he probably has heard about, probably knows some of the information that has gone on, but this... Is a, is a huge deal. Now, what's interesting to me and to you is I can s- tell this story, and you don't hear wah, 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 wah. You hear, oh, that's an amazing sci-fi show, or that's a very interesting idea, because we live in a world where if we were to see a miracle like this, if we were to see something like this, we would assume it was done with special effects, right? We live in a culture where this is just, this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And it's because we have a hard time believing the next line. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, before we think this is some psychosomatic situation, which he was able to stand up and, no, I just believe I can walk. Check me out. This is amazing. Um, He he goes on to actually leap and jump. And I was talking to Steve in our church here. He's a um, physical therapist. And I was just asking, what would it take for somebody to go from having never walked to actually jumping and leaping? And he said, well, it really depends um, it, it would take a lot of time and it would take a lot of effort. He knew one lady once who desired to walk for her, son, I think her grandson's graduation. She'd been in a wheelchair for many, many years and she'd come to see him and he worked with her, but he said this was the hardest working woman she'd ever met or he had ever met. And she would go four times a week, work for hours every day, trying, working out her legs, getting herself ready. And within three months, yeah, she was able to get up, rise up out of the wheelchair and hobble a little bit across the room. Now, that's not leaping and that's not jumping. He said even if you were to give anabolic steroids to a person, it would take well over 12 days before any kind of musculature had changed. And what you're seeing when he stands and his ankles are made strong and his feet are made strong, it's not just his feet and his ankles and now he's got this ability to stand. He has a sudden ability with his inner ear to keep himself balanced, let alone he has the strength and the tendons that are capable of allowing him to leap Look, I'm older enough now to know that that hurts, okay? So this guy was 40-something, and he's, and he's going to leap and jump. I mean, this, this is a miracle of profound proportions. It's, it's nerve transformation, muscular transformation, bone transformation, the capacity of balance. All of this comes together in a moment. 
This isn't a fraud. It can't be faked. He's not like picked out of the crowd to pretend they knew who he was. And in this moment, all of this comes crashing together for me in a, in a very interesting way. And, and what I struggle with is I kind of look at this like I'm a scientifically minded person, right? I, I just told you a bunch of the science. And there's a portion of me and I think a portion of all of us in the scientific Western world that we live in that looks at this and says, yeah, Right. And I think that's a good definition for a miracle. When the scientific part of us says, yeah, right, it's probably a miracle. And that's exactly the concept that's going on here in the text. This is is a radical situation. But do miracles really happen? That's kind of the question that lands. Because to be honest, in our secular Western world, there are a lot of us in this room are like, amen, yes, they do. Yeah, they happen. But would you be willing to grab somebody and lift them out of a wheelchair? That's, that, I mean, I've, known, I've heard of stories where people have been lifted out of wheelchairs only to fall on their faces. And I'm like, I don't know if I'd try that. You know, because there is a big sense in us that when our Western secular mindset, miracles don't happen. They don't occur at all. You know what? We're the, in fact, they don't occur so much. And we know that these stories are fabrications because you find miracles in them. We don't need to believe in Jesus. We need the historical Jesus, not the Jesus of faith. You need the real Jesus who didn't do any miracles. We need the Jesus who, who lived and was a good teacher. That's what we're told out there in a secular society. When you get engaged in the concepts of miracles, people deny and dismiss how the church even began because this stuff occurred as a sign pointing to something. It was driven as in a direction. And so we sit back and we have to ask ourselves as Christians, do miracles really happen? What's interesting is I want to answer you absolutely, yes, they do, and they happen all over the world even today. Um, One of the examples, the best example I have right now is this nice two-volume work. If you want to buy it, they're a bit expensive, but they're they're pretty big by, by a man named Craig Keener. They're called Miracles. And yes, they're two volumes, and he's a scholastic guy, so you know half this last volume is just index and all of his citations of the miracles that he has. So this Craig Keener is actually a historian. He's well-known in, uh, in the biblical studies world as a kind of the renowned guy of biblical backgrounds and understanding. And when you, when you meet Craig Keener, and, and you can, in fact, if you write his name down, Craig, K-E-E-N-E-R, you can go on to the web and just write Craig Keener Miracles, and he gives two talks at Talbot here in, in California, which is the seminary I went to, and he kind of distills down some of the things that he has in here. It is extremely boring but incredible at the same time. I mean, to talk about a guy who can take the most amazing stories and make them sound so mundane, but he does it because he's so used to the material. He catalogs throughout history hundreds, if not thousands, of different miracles that have occurred on every continent, every place, and then he talks about modern miracles and gets into these. And in his conversation, one of the pieces that he laid out he, he begins to talk about why we're, disposi- uh, as uh, Westerners, kind of opposed to miracles and the miraculous. goes back to some philosophers in the Enlightenment period and all that stuff. I won't bore you with that. But what's interesting about it is that we get into this weird thing as Americans. When it comes to eyewitnesses, we trust eyewitnesses all the time. We trust them in a court of law, right? If you have some situation, you need eyewitnesses to attest that this event has happened. The same thing in historiography. When you study history, and he's a historian, he says, you trust your eyewitnesses. When the eyewitness says something, you write it down because if they're reliable, you want to hear about it. And he says, here's the weird thing when it comes to miracles. We flip everything. 
He says, imagine with me for a minute that in our case, let's imagine there was a car accident happened on the corner out here because it's slick and it's wet and that's a place a lot of people go through and we're all in here so we don't see anything that happens. Well, the officers, they're going to go pull everybody who is at the scene who are willing to give a testimony, a statement. They're going to take the statement down of all the eyewitnesses of what they saw and how it worked. And they're going to consider them credible. Now, imagine one of us goes running out there. Now, you've never seen a car accident in your life. You've never been in a car accident in your life. And so you run out there and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? They've cleaned it up. Everybody's gone. There's just the officers still standing there taking the last person's statement. And, and you go, what are you doing? And he's like, what, what, what? He's like, why are you listening to those people? They're all lying to you. What are you talking about? They're not lying to me. There was a car accident. I'm taking their statement. No, nothing happened. Oh, what did, what did, what did you see? Well, I wasn't there. But I've never seen a car accident. I've never been in a car accident. They don't happen. I didn't see it. They're all lying to you. Now, we would think that's a, re- it sounds like a ridiculous situation, doesn't it? That's exactly what we do with miracles. When somebody attests they've seen a miracle and a miracle has happened, it's the people who've never seen a miracle and don't think miracles can happen. They go, well, it didn't happen. I wasn't there and I never saw it. So they don't happen. And we ignore the eyewitness completely. And that's what the world, the secular world, wants us to think when it comes to this concept of miracles. And yet what Craig Keener points out is that in 2000, I believe it was 2006, they, uh, Pew Research actually went out and did an entire study. They, they did 10 countries, interviewed Pentecostals and Charismatics and churches across these 10 countries. And when they got, and they asked one simple question, have you ever witnessed a miracle? Have you ever seen a miracle happen? And when they got the information back, the percentage of number that came back was something like 42%. It equates to about 200 million eyewitnesses of miracles in 10 countries. They're like, yeah, but those are Pentecostals and Charismatics. Of course they think they've seen miracles. Well, hold on. Before we even do that one second, we're going to deny 200 million people who claim eyewitness of miracles are either deceived, misinformed, or something went wrong. When they ask the people outside of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements that they've seen miracles, it's still well over 100 million people. You're talking about hundreds of millions of people across the world that are proclaiming, I have seen it and I have, I've been there when a miracle has happened. We're not talking about just, you know, like the, the little, I'm talking about like people coming back from the dead kind of miracle stuff. And he layers this page after page after page after page and incident after incident after incident of, of attested eyewitnesses to miracles over and over and over again. The point is that we can't just deny all these people are crazy or all these people are lying or all these people are there. You have to actually step back and ask yourself a question. Why have you believed and listen to the people who claim they've never seen one, and therefore they don't ever happen, and therefore you need to listen to me. Versus all of these people who said, I've seen it, I've even written about it, and I'm a doctor for goodness sakes, that's what Luke I think would say, and truly, miracles happen. But here's the thing, Dr. Luke wouldn't say that it's about a debate, whether miracles happen or not. He would say that every miracle is about something more, it's about a sign, because all signs point to something. And all miracles point to a message. And this is the important aspect that I think we as Christians begin to forget. The miracles point to a message. And our desire with miracles is important, but um, for, to see them is important. But here's the thing. If, if you don't believe in them, you're denying them, it, you have to step back and ask yourself a question. Are you denying the miracles because you've never seen a miracle, therefore they can't happen, which I think is, is ignoring the eyewitnesses? Or have you gotten yourself into a situation where you know that every miracle is pointing to something greater? 
because there's a supernatural reality to miracles. And if miracles happen, then God exists. And if God exists, you don't want that God over you, so you got to say, I don't really want the God. I don't want the message of the God, so I might as well get rid of the miracles. And very much most of the reasoning out there is I don't believe in miracles because I don't really believe in God. And you can't prove to me there's miracles because I don't believe in God. And that's called circular reasoning. It just goes round and round and round. And some of us as Christians have been caught into it. There have been entire denominations that have said miracles stopped with the apostles. We don't need to believe in them anymore. They don't happen anymore. And there's entire groups of people out there who are sitting there in those churches going, well, I've seen one, but I'm not allowed to say so. <coughs> What's interesting then is that God has done these mir- the miraculous, and many churches in the West, we've gotten to the place where, honestly, because we're blessed with medicine, and we're blessed with science, two great things. We're blessed with the technologies that we have. All the, the love that God has poured out on us is incredible. Amen, church? That we have the ability to go to a doctor. We have the ability to get these things because God has blessed us. And that's not a bad thing. I be, you know me, I'm more of a scientifically minded person typically in my life. And so I'm not saying that God hasn't blessed us in those ways. But what we have a problem in the church is oftentimes, because we don't really see miracles happen, I think the church has begun to wonder, do they really occur? And therefore, many of us don't start praying over people for miracles. We don't start asking God to do something in the miraculous, and so less miracles happen. Because if those that were called to go out and preach His message aren't bringing His power, and we're not seeing the miracles, we don't go out and try, they're going to have less. And so there's less to look at, and there's less people trying, which makes less. And I think it's just one of those situations that kind of grows. Now, I'm not saying that everything and everybody's going to be a miracle and everybody's going to get healed. That's obviously not how it works. I mean, we, we're going to see that this man, I mean, this man here, he will eventually now have to go get a job because his legs work. Welcome to the working world. He's going to have to um, grow up the rest of his life, which who knows how long it was. It probably wasn't much longer, and he would die. Miracles are a blessing, but miracles point to a message, and it's that message that we need to be focused on. You see, the other danger is oftentimes as we ask for miracles in the West, especially here in America, and we beg God for a miracle because we want our comfort. Can I be honest? We're more likely to pray for our mom or our dad to be healed and made well, or our child or our friend that, is, that are all Christians so that we can just have a little bit longer life, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more. We don't want to go through the suffering. We don't want them to go through the suffering. We don't like suffering as Americans because we don't live in it. Unlike the rest of the world that lives in suffering all the time, very often outside of the West living and suffering every single day of their lives, they look around and God does works a lot. For us, we oftentimes are praying for miracles because we're praying for God just to give us some comfort back. And the danger then is we start running after the miracles for themselves. I mean, how many charlatans are on television smacking people with their jackets claiming miracles are happening, right? And it's because we are longing for the sign, but not what it's signating, not what it's aiming at. We're aiming at the miracle and not the message. And Jesus warns us. In fact, it's an interesting story. He's, he's just finished feeding 4,000 people. They get in the boat, they travel over, and as they're getting out, they meet these Pharisees. And they all walk up to him and they start going, if you think you're the Messiah, you give us a sign right now. Give us a sign. And Jesus is like, whoa, time out here, guys. Listen to me. I'm not going to give you any sign that I'm the Messiah. This isn't how I'm going to work this. Come on, guys, let's get back in the boat. They get back in the boat, they start sailing back to their home. And Jesus leans over to them and he says, hey, guys, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Strange, strange sentence in the book of Mark chapter 7. Pharisees and Herod, what's going on here? Well, they didn't know what he was talking about. They get all guilty. They're like, we forgot the bread at the dock. This is lame. We only got two loaves. He's hungry. We're going to get yelled at. You know, whatever. And they didn't get it at all. What Jesus was saying is, watch out for, over, for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Well, what did Herod do? When Herod got Jesus in front of him, he was so excited because he wanted Jesus to do a little magic trick. Do a magic trick for me, Jesus. Do a miracle for me, Jesus. Come on, show me something. And when Jesus just stood there on his trial and said nothing, Herod goes, get out of here. He didn't give me any fun signs and wonders to watch. That's the leaven that we need to be warned about. We can get into miracles and signs and be so enamored by the miracle and the sign that we forget every miracle points to a message. Every sign is going somewhere. It's pointing in a direction to something. And we can get overly caught into the signs and forget it's pointing to the messenger. It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the one that we should be looking at. So miracles point to a message. And we need to be careful about that because we can get caught in to these kind of things. Now, I believe today that the church needs to, especially in our case, like Olive Branch, I think we need to be stepping a little bit more towards being risky about praying for miracles. You say, Greg, you're going on the deep end. No, 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 here's why. I'm a big logic guy. I love apologetics. I think we should be upstairs talking about apologetics and learning about it because I believe that God has given us tons of answers to prove that our faith is true. I'm a logical person. I'm scientifically oriented. I was going to be an engineer. This is who I am. I can't change that in me. But you know what I've encountered as you get out into society right now? We have a culture that doesn't believe in truth any longer. They say it's dead. They also turn things around that what was once good is now evil and what was once evil is now good. We call things by what they're not and we get yelled at when we call them what they are. And you can't, it's hard to bring logic to bear in a culture that doesn't think logically. Now, you, am I saying don't preach the gospel? No way. Preach the gospel, bring apologetic re- answers, give them reason. And we can run out there and do good works, and we ought to do this. We're going to do a love week here coming up where we're inviting everybody that we can to come. Let's care for people who are underprivileged and, and aren't getting some, that aren't getting the love that they need. We're going to visit some convalescent homes and some other things like that just to bless and hang out with people, just to love on our city a little bit. We're trying to get in with the city to find out how we can help to improve the parks and rec area and these kind of things because we believe that God's called us to bless our city. Amen. Here's the thing, the world may look at all the good works we do and go, wow, that place is great. And then they turn right around and say, so are the good Honda guys. And Tom's shoes. And all the other industries that have become benevolent in their, in their giving and their virtues signaling and all that stuff. And so it's hard. We there's no stand up there. I believe what we're seeing right now is a generation that says, yeah, the church does good stuff. Yeah, they're whatever. Their logic is weird, but we don't need to listen to that. What they're looking for is God to show up in their face. And I believe that's through the miraculous. In many cases, he starts entire movements. Craig Keener indicates there's one movement in India that's one of the most bizarre that I heard about. He says it's a known people group in India that has 99% evangelical Christians in it, which is nuts in India. And he's like, how did it start? And it wasn't a missionary. What happened was the king of that, in that group wound up having a son who was sick. They had brought every shaman in, prayed everything they could, done everything they had, and he died. And in the despair of the king, one random guy came up and says, well, did you pray to Jesus, the Christian God? And they're like, we never heard of this guy. He's like, yeah, I've been told that he's raised some guy named Lazarus from the dead. 
They're like, okay. So they went in and they prayed over him in Jesus' name, a Jesus they didn't know, and the son revived and came back. It was so powerful, everybody in the village became Christian and are still to this day, and they all point back to that event. When God brings a miracle, He's aiming it at the message. And here's the crazy thing. Oftentimes, He brings a miracle so that the people who need the message can hear it. Like, I'll give you a simple example. Look at this. Let's go back and look at this lame man for a second. Verse 2, He says, And the lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And he was a Christian. That line's not in there. And how often is it we're praying for miracles for our Christian brothers and sisters, which we should. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of texts I can point to to that. But how many of you would be gutsy enough to go to your next door neighbor who's sick and hurting and dying and go, hey, I'm here. I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus that you're made well. Now, that's risky. Because what if God doesn't show up? And you're like, well, I guess God didn't want to heal you. Okay, I'm going to go home now. It's like... Kiss that relationship goodbye, no. But no, and I'm slightly joking, but I mean, if you come and you're praying for them, you're praying over them, God does work. It sparks the opportunity to bring the message. But if we're not taking the opportunity, then oftentimes the very thing that might wake them, they don't get to with the message. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this because it takes risk. And guess what? Sometimes even if they see the miracle, they're not going to believe. The weirdest thing that's ever happened in my life happened when I was in high school. I was only a few months into being a Christian. It was, uh, was in my drama class, which meant that there were Dungeons and Dragons players in there. That's how that works. And so they had a bunch of 10-sided dice sitting there. We're having a conversation about God. So having this blast with my, and talking about God, my friend Sean, who had left the Catholic Church and didn't want to do anything about it, and he was this kind of, he was a year younger than me, he was just kind of this foul-mouthed little kid who just loved to throw things in my face, and so he's arguing with me, trying to deal with, so we're rolling these dice and goofing around, and next thing you know, he, he looks at me and says, eh, it's just no God, you could never prove it to me. I said, oh yeah, I'll prove it to you right now, and I took the dice, and I said, I'm going to roll all these, and they're going to be sixes, and I threw them down, and they were all sixes, about eight ten-sided dice. And I went, that just happened. Uh, and he looks at me, he's like, no way, do that again. I grabbed him, fine, there'll be eights. And I threw him down, and they were all eights. And I'm going, he looks at me, he's like, I'll believe it if you do it one more time. I'm like, no way, if you're not going to believe it twice. It's not, I threw him down, they're all scattered numbers. I still don't know what happened to this day. But he looked at me, he's like, that, that, you're just lucky. And he got him walked away. I'm like, lucky? Take a math class, man. One of the weirdest things, but he didn't believe. He walked away from that event where I'm sitting there just going like, uh-huh, am I dreaming? What happened here? But the picture is that we need to be willing to take the moments because those miracles, when they come, they point to a message. They point to a message. So let's, let's trust God is going to do them even here. Because maybe it's our culture that needs to see God working again amongst us even though this, the medicine still works, don't not go to the doctors, please, don't hear me say that. Even though that science is still functioning because God does not go back on His Word. But maybe it's a culture that needs to see that God's alive and acting amongst us still. And it takes a little boldness, takes a little risk, takes a little opportunity. These guys did that. They reached down, they lifted him up. 
And he stood up, and then when it goes on, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. When you see a changed life, there is something called wonder that breaks forth. See, and that's the thing. If you are a Christian in this room, I want to tell you something. A miracle has already happened to you. That miracle is the changed life that has occurred to you. Because when Christ came into your life, he moved you from where you were headed and what you were going to be, but if you were left to yourself, to who you are today. And you need to not devalue what God has done in your life because the miracle of a transformed life changes lives. It preps lives for change. We call them testimonies, but the miracle of your changed life calls for attention as well. And here's the thing. There was a man in our church, um, he, he runs a small group, and we got to hear this story. He kind of was our, one of our testimonies at our small group um, dinner the other night. Pretty incredible story, as he's, as he's told me. He, as he's led this small group, he got a call that a guy he used to mentor was in the hospital for some drug-related problems that had happened. And he got up, and he went to the hospital, and he sat and prayed over, prayed with the guy and prayed over the guy, and he just looked at him, and he was, he was not doing well. And the, the doctors and nurses said, we don't know what's going to happen. He just doesn't look any... And, my friend looked at him, and he's actually one of our elders. He's, he looked and said, I, I believe God just told me you're not going to die. And this man, you know, kind of stayed in the hospital, and, and our elder kind of went home, and, and he got the call the next day that he kind of, this young boy had turned the corner and started getting better. And as he started getting better, you know, he started reconnecting with Bill, and all this conversation began to grow where he gave his life back to Christ. He started, his life got cleaned up. His sister saw it. She gave her life to Christ. His parents saw it and then started coming to church and getting connected again and rededicated their lives to Christ because of a changed life. That's how a changed life transforms lives. And your story should never be discounted for what God has been doing in your life. He may have saved you from drugs. He may have saved you from suicide. He may have saved you from lust. He may have saved you from adultery. He may have saved you from from another religion. He may have saved you from the mundanity of just being you by yourself. I don't know. But don't ever discount whether you're born in the church or otherwise because God saved you. He brought you so that the miracle of your changed life would resound to the message that God wants to hear. And you say, well, I don't know how to put a testimony together. I don't know how to do this stuff. Well, we'll give you a simple way to do that because I think we should be ready to share our own story. And so if you want to text testimony to this phone number, we'll actually send you a link that you can go to and it'll take you to a crew website, which will allow you to, uh, it gives you kind of this testimony layout so you can begin to build your own, tell your story in a way that helps point people to the message of Jesus. And I want to encourage you guys, we would love for you to write those out, email them to the church, that if you feel like God's calling you to do this, we want to take those. We'd love to present them during services because guess what? You're sitting there, no, nobody wants to hear my story. You don't know what I was saved from. That'd be really embarrassing. If you feel that way, just realize there are people in our church who have not received Jesus because they don't think God could ever forgive them of the thing he forgave you. And that you hold people back from having a catalytic moment in which they can see that God works in all kinds of people's lives. Don't discount the miracle of your story. Prepare it 
Get it ready. Let us know. We want to put this in a position to be able to help other people and begin to see that transformation because every miracle points to the message. And so, it's the message of Jesus. That's what Peter does. Check this out. He continues on. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had, dece- when he had decided to release him. And this is the point here. He just kind of lays into the story of Jesus. He says, you saw this miracle. It's not by us. It's by God. And it's through this Jesus that we've been telling you about. The one that you had crucified and you denied. The Holy One and Righteous, the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And that's a huge thing. They are claiming we saw his resurrection. Not only did Dr. Luke write that they saw his resurrection, he had talked to people who had saw the resurrection, he wrote it down. Mark writes Peter's recollections down in what we have as the book of Mark. Matthew was one of the eyewitnesses, and he wrote his eyewitness report down, and so did John. God didn't deliver us information from history that was lost. He gave it to us in four eyewitness accounts that were put down on paper and sustained over generations. Yes, even the most skeptical say we've got the right documents. They come from the first century. And what we have here is a confidence that the miracle has happened and this Jesus has risen from the dead and that, in fact, you need more? Here we go. He says, and in his, and in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all, attaching it to the miracle. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did you also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And what he says here is, you need more proof? Go back to the prophecies. Grab an Old Testament, grab the Hebrew Scriptures, and just read Psalm 22. And then flip to find Isaiah 53 and 54 and read those. And as you read those, I guarantee that in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and 54, you're going to go, nah, this is Christian stuff. This is written about Jesus. But we know it's not. We actually have the actual writing, we have written documents that are older than the time of Jesus that have these actual paragraphs and chapters in them. How do you explain the events of Jesus' life happened after these were already prophesied, saying this was what would occur to my servant, as it was called? And this is only a couple of dozens of prophecies that were fulfilled. Go back to our series in Christmas and go listen to just some of those that were laid out there. And what you'll see is that God was trying to capture our attention the entire time. He gave us good eyewitnesses. He gave us miracles to attest to His power. He gave us prophecies that happened prior to the fact and can be proven that they occurred in Jesus' life to capture your attention for this message. This is what He says, that you need to make a decision about this message, that Jesus has done this, that you would need to first repent. Why? What's repent mean? It means to turn away, turn back from what? From your sins, which is moral failings. They're not mistakes. 
There are things we've done wrong and we feel sorry that we've done, but feeling sorry isn't good enough. As I would tell my own children, I'm glad you're sorry. Make it right. But how do you make it right with God? Well, he says, if you, he'll go on to tell us, he goes, your sins may be blotted out. So repent, turn away from your sins, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, meaning that he'll return and take you home to heaven. The answer is that you, that you have faith in Christ, faith that he has taken your sins on the cross, borne them for you, and released you, made you right with God. And it's a gift given to you that you have to make a decision about. And if you do, he brings times of refreshing. Not everything's perfect, but he'll bring you home to heaven. And it says, in fact, Jesus is in heaven right now. He's, he's received there until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The all things means he's going to restore not just us as human beings. He's going to restore the planet He's going to restore the relationships that we have. He's going to restore our technology. He's going to restore it all. It's His to restore. He's not come just to save people. He's come to redeem all things. And this was spoke by His holy prophets long ago as well. In fact, He goes on to say, if you don't, if you don't want to receive that, here's, the, here's what Moses says would happen. The Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him all also proclaim these days. So he says, these are prophesied events. He said this one was coming. You're to listen to him, and you have two roads that are given to you, a road leading to life eternal or a road leading to death. A road in which you're forgiven, your sins and your, your evils that you've done are blotted out, or a road where they weigh you down and carry you down, and the day you stand before God on the judgment, you have nothing to make it right with. I mean, what can you do after you're dead? And God says, what are you going to do to make it right? Your life is over. There's no more good things you're going to do to others to help make up for the gap between what God requires and where we're at. And that's why God came. That's why he came as Jesus Christ, to bear our sins on the cross, to take our moral failings and fill that gap out, to make it right. We have to change our mind about all the good we've done. We have to change our mind about all the bad we've done. We have to be able to receive the gift. You say, Greg, this is for Jewish people. No, it's for everyone. Notice how he finishes. He says, you're the sons of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers, uh, saying that in Abraham and in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it starts with Jewish people. It started with the proclamation to the Jewish people that their Messiah had come, that they received and they'd be forgiven. But it's spread out from there, as we will see, to us. Hey, if you've got Jewish blood, you have an opportunity then to receive your Messiah. But if you don't, you have an opportunity to receive the Jewish Messiah whose blessing has flowed to all people. This isn't a Jewish thing. This isn't just some Western European thing. This isn't some American thing. This isn't some persecuted Chinese church thing. This is something for everyone all around us, everywhere. It's for you because God loved you that he gave his son to bear your sins and to give him a gift to you if you're willing to receive him. I don't know how much more attention he needs to capture than the miracles, the 
prophecies, the resurrection, the eyewitnesses, and the changed lives that surround you. And today I want to encourage you, maybe this is the opportunity you need to seize to receive the forgiveness of your own moral failings, to have the hope of heaven and the promise of God that you are forgiven. Would you bow your head with me? Today I want to let you know it's, it's an opportunity for you to receive the gift that God has given to make you right with him and to begin on the journey of the road to life. There's no amount of work you can do to clean yourself up for God. I mean, the Jewish people were good people. They were very good people, and God said to them, you need to repent and receive this gift. But there's also no amount of sin that can keep you away. He can forgive all of it. He said that your sin, your moral failing would be blotted out, not some of it, but all of it. And so today, if you're willing to receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ of being forgiven of your sins, you've never received that before, I want to give you a chance right now. And you're just telling me, yes, that's me. And you're just putting your hand up. You're saying, I want that today. Would you put your hand up high enough? I want to walk you through a prayer. You're syndicating to me that you're ready to receive that today. Amen. Just pray this with me. Start with, God, I know that I have moral failure. And I ask that you would forgive me. I trust that Jesus has made it right between you and me. Thank you that you would forgive me. Would you not come into my life? And would you lead me? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.